You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Earn and Invest podcast, where we not only teach you how to earn and invest in your financial life, but also your unique meaning and purpose. I'm your host, Doc G, and today we're going to explore making your first creative dollar with Michelle from the blog Savvy History. Now, wait a minute. I'm certain that for some of you out there, money and creativity go hand in hand, but maybe even for the majority listening at the moment, you might say, hey, I'm in my 40s or 50s and I'm looking to retire from my job as a doctor, lawyer, engineer, fill in the blank. What's creativity got to do with it? That's how I felt. In fact, I was so busy building a career as a physician in my formative years that I continuously pushed down many of the creative outlets, which I really enjoyed. I always spurned activities like writing and public speaking because I thought they were just hobbies. No one makes any money doing that. That's why I became a doctor, to make a living. Yet it was only after reaching financial security that I realized that I had filled my life with activities that lacked the true sense of meaning and purpose that I was looking for. And then I returned to these creative ventures later. We're not just talking about creativity here. We're talking about passion. The old advice used to be, follow your passion. Now all the gurus tell us, forget passion, go after what you're good at, and follow your passions in your spare time. And it's not just for you. Maybe you're past some of these decisions, but what about your kids? Do you support your daughter dropping her engineering major to pursue dance? Do you accept your eighth grader's poor grades because he's a guitar prodigy? What do you do? Michelle is the creator of the platform Savvy History, which explores biographies using music and storytelling. Michelle specializes in taking true stories from the past and presenting them in an engaging way with folk music. The original music of Savvy History is one part of a larger project focused on creativity throughout history, distilling research into songs, classes, and written articles about inventors, artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and explorers. You can find her blog series entitled First Creative Dollar at SavvyHistory.com. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I love this topic, and I, I love that you shared your own personal story to start us off. <laughs> so a little about me, my personal background. I was a musician, a full-time musician in my early 20s. I took a break from college in order to do that. And when I returned to college, I got an endorsement as a teacher in talented and gifted education. So the situation that you described is so common to so many friends that I had growing up. 
and myself, and then later students that I had where they are incredibly capable of taking a traditional path and pushing themselves to the fullest extent to have a professional life. While at the same time, many of them have burning desires on the side that they know they could fulfill and follow as well, but they don't know if the money would follow. So it's very interesting to talk to people at, you know, around the age of 18 when everything is stirring in those directions. And for example, I even coached and worked with a girl who was trying to decide between music and engineering because she was a straight A student who was clearly going to be brilliant at both. And these decisions are hard. And we think that there's that period when we're 18, when we have to make them, but then they actually just keep reoccurring in life over and over again. Uh, As you mentioned in the intro that a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old could be asking themselves the same questions because we just live in the modern era where there is so much choice and we are humans built to imitate and we see so much online. We see so many other lives being led in different ways. And then those questions enter our heads and we ask ourselves, oh, am I, am I doing what I need to be doing? Am I using my skills as a person to help others and further myself along as much as I could? It's, it's a really common question and, and I am living it and <laughs> walking through it. So first Creative Dollar developed as my own, I would say, auto psychotherapy. It's, it's my self-help for myself to go and explore these stories about how creative people that I have admired, like Louisa May Alcott, Jules Verne, Bob Ross, how did they navigate this line that they had to walk between a creative life and money? And where did their first dollars come from? Did they find those experiences motivating or fulfilling? Or were they really insignificant experiences that if you had had them, you would think, oh my gosh, this person probably had no idea. what they were going to be capable of in the future based on that first dollar that may have actually just been one dollar. Let's start with the introduction to your first post. You say, welcome to the first of many posts about historical financial struggles and triumphs. Most importantly, I hope this series offers internal lessons that can be taken away from artistic efforts to make money from creativity throughout time. Why money through creativity? I mean, what's the connection? Why do you pursue looking at both of them together? I just know that some of the most anxiety-provoking moments of my own life were around that issue. And there's a lot out on the internet now discussing creativity and business. And, And when I say creativity, I know that all humans are creative. And I know that creativity is used in most careers in some form or another. And usually I find myself talking in the traditional sense when we hear the word. I'm thinking actors, musicians, writers, the people that, you know, are either going to make it big or perhaps make nothing at all. Those people who have to make that decision of if they're willing to put themselves out there and have it not work whatsoever because it's either such a competitive field or it's such an abstract vision that they might have, that they have to do little tests and trial runs to see if anybody, you know, is even into it. So that's why that line between money and creativity is something that I want to address because I knew the light bulb moment when I was 
17 and I first earned money from playing guitar that really set me on a path that was quite different than what my path would have been otherwise. And I just am into exploring that in order to, you know, help anybody else that comes across it and especially young people or people in the middle of life transitions. Now, you call your platform Savvy History. Why the historical perspective? That's an interesting question that has to do with uh, a songwriting break that I took. I wrote five albums that were all basically that traditional singer-songwriter diving into their head, examining their own life. And I really went far with it to the point that I got sick of myself and my thoughts. So imagine really intense songwriting. It's it's like you're journaling all the time daily, which is a good thing. We all know Morning Pages, Julia Cameron, uh, The Artist's Way. But it reached a point for me where I just was sick of my own ideas and my own tiny little world. I I was like, I think I'm actively looking for problems, for one, because there's so much of that you know, narrative in the artistic world. And especially I was a grunge kid. I grew up as a a, a young little preteen and in the early nine, you know, in the nineties. And I just loved that grunge mentality until I got older and realized, oh my gosh, a lot of those lead singers have now either killed themselves or accidentally died. There was something in that. I just love grunge, but there was something in it that as a you know six-year-old listening to it at the pool, I absorbed something about a lot of good songs being negative. And I think I probably took that and kind of ran with it and was a dark person myself, having had a dark mental health history. And I was like, I am done writing songs like that. And I had this probably a year off where I didn't write any songs whatsoever. And then I decided to write a song through the lens of a historical person. And it was the biggest creative burst that I think I have ever experienced when people talk about just what we're all striving for when we become creative, that interaction with a deeper side of our psyche that also meets the outside world. This creative burst, I wrote so many songs in an incredibly short period of time, it it was like taking a a pin needle and just popping a balloon. And I realized that that was a greater message for creativity overall. And I've I've heard of certain books that kind of touch on it, like The Alter Ego Effect is a a book out there that I, I haven't actually read yet, but I know that that's kind of what happened is once I could write through the perspective of other people and I could get outside of my own life and view it as more universal connection that that I was on to something that was healthy both for myself and as a a template for you know helping and coaching others so as i was doing my graduate education in talented and gifted studies i came across this idea of bibliotherapy and i realized that that's what i was doing and bibliotherapy is in in short words, it's book therapy. It's using books for the benefit of mental well-being. And it's a it's a three to four stage process depending on which discipline you study. But it's that idea of you first identify or recognize yourself in a character. And then you go through cathartic examination and then eventually reaching stage three of insight where you might juxtapose your life, comparing and contrasting it um, to the situation 
and then universalization and self-application to make changes in yourself. I realized that I didn't have that articulation when I started writing songs through the perspective of historical quirky characters, but that that's what I was doing and that there there was a, a discipline out there for this. So I, I studied that formally and that's what I took on for my master's thesis was this idea of can bibliotherapy help high achieving people empathize? Because when we look at systemizing and empathizing in individuals, it's a continuum in the brain and and We've all kind of seen it in those informal ways when somebody's really high achieving that they they might not always be thinking of others in a tangible way. And, and I really love studies on this where people who are high systemizers and very high achieving might be incredibly empathetic with the world on a large scale. Think like the type of person who goes to a zoo and cries. But in person, when you meet them, maybe they're just selfish. They're the person that ate all the cookies on the table and, and, and things like that, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does. I'm, I'm trying to connect that a little bit to what you've done with First Creative Dollar, because you do talk about historical figures like Frederick Douglass and George Orwell, but then you also include some modern day stories like our friend Dave from Accidental Fire. So there is this kind of juxtaposition of historical versus modern day, almost to understand us a little bit better. The us being the greater us, maybe you and I who are interested in personal finance, but our community in general and how kind of those historical figures can reflect on what we're doing in the modern day. Yes. I I took that process that I was using as a reader and then as a songwriter. And I thought, I think I can apply this to money. And and at the same time that I, you know, each month try to take on somebody from the past, like Louisa May Alcott or someone like that, and study their money story, I love the idea of hearing first creative dollars from other people in the personal finance world and also some creatives that are from my town. I live in an amazing small, small town, about 10,000 people with incredibly creative things going on. So... I just love that idea of kind of compiling it into one spot. And and like you say, you might read about someone from the past or a story from hundreds of years ago. And then the next person up on the blog might be a modern day person. And, and their story is often just as engaging. And then for me personally, I like to track and see where they go with it. It forms a more meaningful relationship online with people to have them tell that moment you know, the moment of the first time they made money with their current endeavors and then see kind of where they go with it. And if if it drives them in any sort of direction or in some sort of path, you know, I've, I've thought at times, is this too wide? Should I narrow it only to historical people? And, and then the answer clear, clearly became no. So there is actually a form on the website. If you want to share your first creative dollar, it's right there in the work with me section. And it would just be answering these questions and then submitting it. And I hope to compile it over time and have it split off into different categories. So for example, with Dave from Accidental Fire, that would be like graphic design. And then I have other people that are becoming coaches and uh, or they're freelance writers and just kind of put them in different sections. So uh, when I imagine 
a, a young person in the future, like students that I've helped as a talented and gifted educator, if they could have a spot to go and then click and then read a couple of different first creative dollars and see the variety in those stories to just help them know that, you know, for some people, it's not much for some people, it's 200 bucks. And it, it just helps you find your way on your own path to see the diversity of these stories. You mentioned that for some people, it isn't that much. Let's dive into some of these historical first creative stories because they're just so interesting. Frederick Douglass made 50 cents polishing shoes, which is the equivalent of $14 today. Why did that qualify as a creative dollar? Yeah, when I did that one, I was really looking for the first time. And, and I searched quite a while whenever I do these stories, but I couldn't find the first time that he sold any of his writing. and. Then I just looked at that moment and it struck me that he took that money and he bought a book that could teach him how to read. And this was a book that was available to the school children in his area, but obviously the white school children in his area since he was a slave. And I just thought that that was pretty brilliant that he took that 14 and some something dollars that he made. And I think he bought a $12 book that then he used to teach himself to read. And, and then it, history takes over from there. We all know Frederick Douglass as an amazing uh, public speaker, an amazing writer. And, and what he did for this nation is truly epic. And it's just like, I'll dive in looking for that creative dollar. And sometimes it's not exactly what I think it is. Even with Jules Verne, I, I noticed that he got paid zero dollars for the first thing that he formally published. He did go through a publisher, but they just didn't even pay him. Yeah, and that's not uncommon that the first time one of these historical figures goes to do what we know them for best, they're not always successful. George Orwell is another one who his first book before Animal Farm didn't really make much of a splash. Yeah, I was amazed to learn about how when we experience George Orwell nowadays, we usually first hear about him in English class through Animal Farm like you said, or 1984 is another one that we hear about him from. And back in the day, he was known more as a journalist or an essay writer. He was not thought of as a novelist. So even just to take these people and understand history happens in terms of context and that they reflect something completely different as time goes by, it is kind of insightful. You've mentioned Louisa May Alcott a few times. She wrote her first short story volume actually for the famous daughter of one of the well-known transcendentalists. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, she was encouraged to write when different transcendentalists around her noticed her talent. And I, I believe it was Ralph Waldo Emerson's daughter that she wrote about some flowers. You know, she got paid to write it, but it wasn't much. And the reason that I love Louisa May Alcott's story is actually further down the line, her writing of Little Women is is kind of comical in a sense. She didn't actually like writing about women and girls, but that's something that her publisher wanted from her. So she wrote this book in, on an incredibly fast timeline, if you kind of put it in perspective. And then when she went to town, after it had come out to pick up her check, she thought that the publishing house was moving or that it had gone bankrupt because there was just such a scene going on outside it. There were tons of people gathered. 
And and to think that she had no concept that it was all the people going wild over her book. <laughs> I just love that story because we couldn't have anything like that happen nowadays with our fast communication. Your if if your book took off, your publisher would be sending you an email or giving you a phone call. But she's actually just going into town to get some things and she sees this place and and only later finds out that her book was, you know, a monumental work to to many people not just f- throughout time for the rest of us, but at that moment. And it made her very famous. And people would come to her house and she would actually pretend to be a servant. She was not comfortable with being well-known. So she might answer the door and say, oh, Luis is not here right now. <laughs> the, the fun part of it is we get to see kind of the baby steps of these people who would eventually become very famous. Let me ask you, did one of the stories stand out as your favorite as you went through all these historical figures? I grew up watching Bob Ross, and I know that he's not historical in the sense of a long time ago, but I just loved this man. I loved his demeanor. I loved how calm he was. And then to find out that, you know, he had been, I think, Air Force, just that he had he had achieved ranks so high in the military, it just stunned me. So I just thought of him up in Alaska doing his thing, retiring early as he did. And at the same time, he was painting on gold pans and he was working at some bar and that he was selling these paintings, you know, I think for around $60 or something like that. And, and that just struck me as fascinating because I love people who bring together things that you wouldn't think would exist in the same person. And he definitely exemplifies that. Plus just his quirky little quotes that you can find on Netflix now. I know several young teenagers who know of Bob Ross because of Netflix. (laughs) And I can't say, you know, I love all the stories that I explore, but that one just sticks out to me because I I just, I never knew his military history. I never would have guessed it. And it just shows the sides of people that are possible. Let me reintroduce you for those just joining. We are talking to Michelle from Savvy History about her blog series, The First Creative Dollar, Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive 
easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. On this episode, we'd like to give a shout out to Unify Money. The big banks spend billions of dollars on advertising each year and create special acquisition incentives and promotions to attract new customers. And you know why? Because they have to. Because they offer very poor value for customers' deposits. The separate accounts and functions make it purposefully complex to manage money. All these expenses, advertising, branch costs, etc., have to be paid for. Unfortunately, it's the customers that foot the bill through low interest rates and high fees. A typical bank retains over 90% of what they make from people's money. Unify Money aims to give 90% of the money back to users. It has been created to provide people with a better way to manage their money. Unify Money offers a single solution that includes everything you need for everyday money management, including saving, spending, and investing. Unify Money has optimized your personal financial management to make it effortless, maximizing passive income via interest and cash back and creating long-term financial assets through investment automatically and by default. Unify Money makes your money work for you, not the bank. If you want to learn more, check it out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash unify. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash U-N-I-F-I and check them out. Michelle, I'm going to go back to our friend Dave from Accidental Fire. He talks about his first creative dollar was making a sticker for his, I think it was making a sticker for his snowboard, and he did it on Zazzle.com. And it makes me think about these historical figures and then people of today. Do you think it's easier to make that first creative dollar nowadays? I mean, with the internet and all the marketplaces out there, it just seems like we're talking about something different than, for instance, Louisa May Alcott would have faced as she was walking to see them purchasing her first book. Yeah, I do think that I am a kid in a candy shop on the internet. I find it fascinating, different ways to use your creativity. To I've never made large amounts of money or anything, but I've just had experience where I was experiences where I've just been awed where I'm like, what does this mean? And I didn't even know this was possible when I was a five-year-old and kids were asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't know that the internet would be such a thing and that you could go through something like Dave went and discover a platform and then you know, work with that platform, learn more about it, try to meet people with something they want while at the same time offering something that you're good at or that you enjoy. I, I do... You know, if I were to comment on modern life, I do think it is easier. But that being said, it's also easier for everyone. It's hard to find a deep vein to follow through on. Because as I just started this conversation, I called myself the kid in the candy shop. And I am. I've just tried out a lot of different things. And I found that what I enjoy most is teaching. 
I enjoy things that are built around creativity, teaching songwriting on the OutSchool platform and, and things like that. Even this morning, I woke up, I taught a yoga class related to creativity and did a sun salutation instructional class. And I just never saw that in my life, probably even five years ago. I didn't know that that was something that was possible. So I'm just exploring. I'm not a yoga expert, but just even that idea that I love creativity and I understand the role of mindfulness, meditation, and yoga with creativity. So I could post a class about that and then have someone show up. It's just fascinating. It hits me that for a lot of these historical figures, creativity and technology were not necessarily always connected. And yet in modern day life, uh, they seem to vibe off each other. And we certainly seen this during the pandemic. Even a few years ago, Michelle, I, I assume you couldn't imagine you would be leading a yoga class, probably virtually. Yes, it was virtual. creativity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love um, technology. I'm someone who has completely changed over a 10, 15 year period. I was definitely someone hesitant about technology. I would say I was one of the last people in my social circle to get an iPhone, but that's all changed. I, I totally embrace it. Now I'm excited every time there's some new tech hack kind of to learn with the tools that I have. Michelle, talk about some of the common threads that you were able to pull from all of these creative dollar stories. Are there some themes that run throughout them? I think it's important to realize for myself that there's no one path. I think that's one of the larger insights and that people go all in and it doesn't always work out for them. So when I think of the Bob Ross story, I just think of He's obviously an incredibly talented person, but there there's probably a million people out there that painted mountains and trees in a in a similar way and they they didn't maybe merge it with their business skills. And that's really the difference between who's known and who's not. That there's epically creative people all around you all the time. And I continually encounter people either online or that are my neighbors where I, I just think, wow, what they are doing is brilliant. I really hope that it's appreciated in some way by the broader world someday. But if not, I hope that person still knows that what they have done was impactful for the few people that encountered it. So that's, that's just something that I'm learning as I dive into these stories. I know that these are recognizable names usually when I take on the historical people, but I think there was probably somebody within a hundred miles of them that probably did something amazing, but for some reason, timing is everything and, and maybe it didn't come together for them. And, and that's just a curious thing to sit and ponder about all the amazing works throughout time that we as a culture of people nowadays haven't encountered. In fact, quote unquote failure is a thread for both these historical figures and then the millions of others who never became known. People fail at creative endeavors or at least fail in the traditional sense of using them to make money. And that was something we even saw with some of these historical figures like George Orwell, who didn't necessarily meet success immediately. There's so many stories about people that <laughs> we didn't appreciate them until after they passed away. It's just knowing that when you take on a creative task or if you turn your life 
in a complete creative direction that you could be ahead of the times, you could be behind the times, you might meet the culture where it's at, you might not. And then who are you really doing it for? And I don't think it's selfish to say you might be doing a portion of it for yourself because life is short and you just want to see what your mind is capable of. Yeah, that makes me wonder, what percentage of these creators do you think actually supported themselves with their creative work? That's a great question. I'd have to look through to know. Uh, it It's surprisingly not many. I think moonlighting is very common, especially for writers. For myself, even, I had to think of how much I love to write, but that you have to live life first. So when I was a teenager, I just always wanted to be a writer. And it, it dawned on me that writing might, poetry might be for younger people. And there are studies in creativity about when certain disciplines peak and at what age. So it seems like a lot of poets kind of peak in their 20s. A lot of composers, it's the age 35. But if you're, if you're talking long form writing, it's great to have lived a little first. It's great to have experienced some things. So if you're a writer and you're taking that perspective, I think it's great to have a day job. I, I love good day jobs. I promote that. I talk about that, you know, with a lot of just that personal finance world that I might be on in Twitter for a little bit. I, I think it's great to have life experience that gets you out of your head and gets you interacting with other people. And you can take that back to your creativity and your creative activities at different times throughout your life. In fact, I think you mentioned Louisa May Alcott was like a governess and a seamstress and did all sorts of things before she was a writer. Do you think the creativity makes people better business people in the end? I mean, that's something that, you know, we pursue creativity, I think, sometimes for selfish reasons. But does it have benefits when we become entrepreneurial? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic thing to ponder. And I can only really connect to my own life experience as, like I said, you, you just got to picture this young girl that dressed in flannel and combat boots and loved grunt. So then when I started making money off my creativity, what do you think my reaction was? I, I thought the business world was going to be scummy and slimy and I didn't want to view myself that way. I wanted to view myself as, yeah, I make, I make money playing shows. I make my CDs. I kind of have a secret love of business, but I, I won't even admit it to myself, <laughs> let alone the people around me. So I'm kind of just going to daydream all day and write these poems. And that was me as a 20-year-old. And I, I look back on what that was really about. And it was based on fear. It was based on not understanding the spectrum that a single person can cover as a personality. Once again, back to Bob Ross to go from the fact that he, you know, apologized later on saying I was probably one of the cruelest generals or whatever that he was, you know, in charge of people. I was probably incredibly cruel and yelling at people. And, and then he goes on and he paints the nice little trees and the spectrum that people can cover. So I really limited myself and only as I got older did I realize that I had an appreciation for business because I think creativity and business go together. It's It sounds ridiculous to separate the two at this point, especially when we look at traditional business people. 
the Richard Bransons of the world that are just incredibly out there and incredibly creative and obviously creative. And, and that's when you realize that the way that got separated long ago might be the right brain, left brain talk that we go on. And, and modern science has kind of shot that down. Modern brain science has shot it down quite a bit, but we still use that language and we separate ourselves off onto one side or the other. I'm an English person or a math person. I'm this or that. I, I don't believe that anymore. I think it can all fit in the same circle. So let's broaden the conversation by talking about another dichotomy. After creating this first Creative Dollar series of writing about historical figures as well as modern day creators, do you have a different take on the whole passion play? Like, we now are faced with lots of people, and you had mentioned them before, in their 18, 19, 20-year range. And they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives, what to do with the career. You know, there are many people out there saying, follow your passion. And then there are just as many other people saying, you know what, passions are great, but let's find what you're good at and you can make money at. Do you have any different perspectives about these issues after doing this series? I really don't like the passion talk. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I I do think you have to meet the world halfway and you have to have something to offer in order to feel fulfilled yourself. I, I think we enjoy things that we are good at in the long run. I, I think we enjoy things when we find success in them. I don't think that that's selfish. I just think it's human. And I'm passionate about a lot of things that I would never dream of monetizing. And most of the things that I am passionate about that I do feel the tug towards turning into a side hustle or a career are things that I have had objective evidence and other people tell me that I was good at. And it's hard to go back in life and wonder if I had you know, been writing and my teacher hadn't said that, that teacher that I really looked up to. Would I have viewed myself as a writer? Would I have developed the talent further? Where did that come from? How much of it was extrinsically motivated because someone complimented me on it versus intrinsically motivated because I loved to do it? it there's feedback cycles there that I think whenever we find ourselves in love with something, we have to analyze. And then there's also just the pull of imitation. Humans are built to imitate. And when you think of how many kids out there nowadays want to be a content creator of some time, some kind, either on YouTube or on one of the social media platforms, does that come from imitation, from the fact that when we are on those platforms, they, the people that we are seeing are the, usually the people that are very successful at it. And then we want to try it for ourselves. So I think it's just good to be aware of that, that sometimes you can take, mistake your own passion for something that is success, maybe in the eyes of your peer group or in the eyes of the wider culture. It's an interesting conversation, this extrinsic versus intrinsic, as well as maybe considering a more hybrid model than just the clear dichotomy of passion versus what you're good at. I know I face that a lot in medicine. I don't think anyone sat me down when I was in my 20s and said, look, you can be a doctor and be creative at the same time. You can use your verbal skills, your interest in public speaking, your interest in writing and use that to help heal and, you know, palliate people when they're going through pain and difficulties. It was only later in my career when I discovered hospice work that I found that I could merge 
both kind of my passions as well as my formal education, maybe that's what we're not doing right, Michelle. Maybe we're not letting people know that they can bring that creativity to the more formalized workplace and jobs that they have been told ever since they were a child they should do. I look at the school systems and I see how hard individuals are trying and and people, there's so much research out there that we also then need to integrate and try to get the schools to catch up with. And I, I would just expand on what you're saying by thinking about how you might have several careers. So what about thinking about what order you want those careers to appear in? And, and that's something that I've been thinking through myself. And I'm kind of pleased with the way I've played it out so far. So I imagine myself 17. And, and like I said, this other girl that I've worked with, and I loved everything. And that is a really hard spot to be in because you don't know what to choose. And I think, why did I choose music? It's because I knew it was a young person's game. And, and I know like a lot of flack could come back on me for saying that, but when you even just look at the circadian circadian rhythm of a young person, I was able to stay up late. I was able to do those clubs. I was able to play those gigs and, and do that. And I got it out of my system so thoroughly. And I have no desire to live that way ever again. Whereas if I had really focused as a traditional career path type of person from the beginning, I think there'd probably still be some little voice talking in the back of my head like, oh, you know, you could have written songs. You could have done that. And and now I don't have to say that. I can say, you did it. You saw what it was. It was a good time. And you knew when it was done. There was there was something inside you that really was able to rise up and tell you when you were done. So so I just think order of operations is is something that I wish was talked about more. Order of operations for pursuing different careers so you can live a life of variety. Boy, I really connect with that. I'm pretty famous for saying this idea of front-loading the sacrifice, and that's how I almost look at my career is I front-loaded a lot of the hard work at becoming a physician and being very busy in my 20s and 30s. But what that did allow me to is to become financially independent enough to back away from those things and pursue a much more creative life, which included things like public speaking and podcasting and blogging and doing all those things. So I love this idea kind of of being more thoughtful and intentional about the sequence in which we do things. You're the exact opposite for you. I agree. That's what I was going to chime in and say. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, yeah, now I realize that if I liked math, I probably could have done something with math pretty intensely for 10 years and then been okay. But it, it just is what it was, you know? Yeah. And I think you would have missed your moment to be the musician because like you said, the circadian rhythms, music is definitely, at least in the beginning, a game for young people. Although we know plenty of older people who've been successful at it. But at that point in your life, that was probably the time to do that. Yeah. And now that I have my house that I love, no one could pay me enough to tour. It's something that I would say point blank. I'm like, unless you can take my house that I love and my family that I love and basically my town and put it on wheels, I probably don't want to do that. (laughs) 
Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Michelle from Savvy History about her blog series, The First Creative Dollar. I am Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. If you've been listening to this show and trying to figure out how do I increase my top line, one way is through real estate. And when I want to learn more about real estate, one of my favorite places to go is the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson. This podcast is all about how to use real estate as an asset class to get ahead towards financial independence. There are two types of episodes, one in which the coach himself gives you all the tips and tricks on how to make money in real estate. The other is where he has guests, proof of concept, real life examples of people out there like you and I making real estate work towards their financial independence plan. It is a wonderful podcast. I hope you check it out. Go to coachcarson.com. Again, that's coachcarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. Michelle, do you think the educational system recognizes the sequencing issue that we were just talking about? Do you think there's any formalized way in which we're letting our kids know that they don't have to look at a career as this monolithic thing that actually they can have many careers and maybe they should be thoughtful about which to start with? I think individual thoughtful teachers are aware of it. And when they can carve out those times to talk about it in their rooms, they do. There's kind of an echo chamber in education for people who've never had careers outside of it, though. And I think that's really interesting to think that someone could have started school at four years old, gone straight into college, exited college straight into an educational system, and maybe never experienced anything outside of it. It's just an observation. I don't know if it's a problem or not, but as somebody who has had other careers and kind of moved in and out of working in a couple of different schools. It's really meaningful to me. I, I did help to teach a, an eighth grade career unit. And I just touch on that fact. And I, I mention, you know, anytime you spot yourself in an echo chamber, what are you going to do to change things up? How are you going to bring in outside experiences, outside thoughts and, and, and just be able to see a larger picture than what might be happening on a path that's laid out for you while you're making your four-year plan for high school. That's why I'm, I'm really passionate about exploratory classes, not overscheduling yourself by any means, but when the rest of the day is yours, what are, what are you doing with it? Either as a kid or if you're a parent, school, you know, seven hours there. If, if you take away all of the extra things as some parents found during the pandemic, kids can learn a lot in about two to three hours. They can learn what they were supposed to do. So the rest of the time is yours. Even in that public school setting, the, the rest of the day is yours. What are you bringing in to explore the variety of careers out there? And even with teaching, you think of how many, there's been just studies that take place where they talk about this progression of students who have parents that have never been to college often become teachers because it was a job they were able to see. And then those teachers go on to have kids that are lawyers or doctors. I remember reading that somewhere and it, it was such a light bulb moment when you think of, you know, for me, I, I definitely uh, resonate with that. And then I would think of kids that I work with who talked to me about being a teacher, either because they really loved 
me working with them or they they had other teachers in their history that had impacted them so thoroughly and they hadn't known that anywhere else. And the job market seems so overwhelming that they just are at least able to guess what being a teacher might be like based on the fact that they were around them all the time. I think that brings us kind of full circle because when I'm thinking about that echo chamber, it's one of the things I really like about your series, First Creative Dollar, is by giving us some historical perspective, it really gets us out of our modern day echo chamber and gives us some insight about how creative people have made their lives work in the past. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone you're looking forward to profiling in the future? Talk to me about who you think will show up on First Creative Dollar coming up in the next few months. Yeah, well, my life is kind of in flux. And First Creative Dollar is my passion project that I do on the side. So I uh, I, I'm putting a lot of energy into some other things right now, but I do want to do Eric Carlisle because he passed away recently. And I read those books all the time to my kid. You know, brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? The hungry yes. caterpillar, all that stuff. So I just wanted to know this man who has made his way into so many people's homes, when he started, did he have any idea? And just kind of see what the story was there at the beginning. So that's somebody that I can think of immediately that's been on my radar. But I have a long list going. I, I definitely have a lot of people I want to look into. I kind of only tackle people that have passed away just to kind of keep that historical feeling going. But there, there's so many people I'm curious about. I think maybe I should create a dream list of if they're still alive and I would want to know it would be a goal to possibly interview them if I was ever able to turn this into something bigger. So, And let's turn back again to your personal platform. Tell us a little more about Savvy History. How did you come up with the idea to bring those both together, this idea of history, personal finance, business, and even folk music? Well, I'm kind of just going through some transitions myself. And then the pandemic just accelerated those transitions for me. So I always knew I was somebody who wanted to try a sabbatical. So my blog started kind of as this personal finance journey that I was going on to make sure that I saved enough to do such an experiment responsibly for my family. I was able to reach that. So I am this year reworking the blog a little bit to turn it into live classes that are based around history and creativity, exploring just famous competitions in history, exploring how living like we have the option to live like a king nowadays. And these are fun ideas and topics that I offer for students under 18. But then uh, I also offer creativity coaching for older adults. And I like to bring in matching a story with a situation. So just that background of books that I've read and stories that I've heard that I've kept notes on over the years, just kind of meeting people where they're at with a story that can speak to different sides of them and offer an example that they can resonate with. And, you know, what would creativity coaching be if I wasn't also <laughs> endeavoring in my own creative activities and putting myself out there? So I, I still do my folk singing in the summer. I've Got three gigs booked this summer. It's really low key, but I do sing my historical songs and do that. So it all kind of works as one right now. I I enjoy it that way. Like anybody, I have certain ideas that pop into my head and I'm like, oh, wow, this could probably be its own thing. And I'm still kind of in an exploratory stage, but I'll be having to narrow and focus here as, as the months start ticking away. And 
if you're interested uh, in what I'm up to, yeah, it's just SavvyHistory.com. And I'll probably start playing some of my songs actually on Instagram. It's it's interesting to have built this thing, but actually never put myself out there <laughs> very much in terms of my music yet. Yeah. I was about to say, do you want to sing something for us since you want to, you know, you've, you've got an open mic here. <laughs> I I think I'll be getting out there on Instagram and just putting the phone up and, and having my nice historical photos behind me and, and getting some songs out there. So people can follow on Instagram if they're interested in, in the music itself, which it, it's, it really does tie in with the first creative dollar blog in the sense that I pick people that are from the past that have, are usually overlooked historical people. And then just kind of look through their quotes. I look through their notes, their, you know, online journal parts that I can find. So for example, like I wrote a war letter song based on a a civil war letter that half of it was missing and just kind of finished what I thought maybe the second half of the letter would have been. Things like that. Just using history as a creative prompt. And what's your Instagram name? Is it just at Savvy History? Yep. Savvy History at all social media channels. All right. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Michelle from Savvy History. Thank you so much for having me, Doc G. That's a wrap. Michelle, I'm going to have you stay for the after show here. Anyone who is in the studio and wants to ask questions, be sure to ask and come up on stage. Oh, that was a great conversation. I felt like I I really filled the space maybe quite a bit, but um, that's what a podcast guest does. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. Certainly, uh, if I try to fill the space, it gets really, really boring. So, <laughs> no, you have a great you have a great way of piecing things together. Yeah, I was mentioning before that you and I connected on Instagram about a book you were reading about highly sensitive people, and I was sharing with you that I live with a family of highly sensitive people. It's not something most people know about, but what is it? About twenty percent of our population are highly sensitive. Yep, 15 to 20%. And this was done in research studies with species across the spectrum. So it's, it's seem, it seems to be a part of evolution. And it would benefit evolution to have like 15 to 20% of um, the population experiencing everything kind of at a, at a heightened volume. If you just took, <laughs> took the dial and moved it up. And, and that's the way we experience life. So... Yeah, I love that. That's a great description is if you turn the volume up, these are people kind of like the canaries in the coal mine. They feel things before everyone else does. There are all sorts of characteristics, everything from being sensitive to loud noises to being very empathic and being able to feel the emotion in a room when you're around lots of people. Um, it's something that, that I feel like most people are not aware of, and yet it's such a big part of our population. What I found with my own children is that understanding their highly sensitive nature just made it easier to do all sorts of things. I remember my son, he was taking violin and they had concerts once a year where they got up and did a solo song. And my son, for some reason, couldn't make it to the last rehearsal. And that was the rehearsal where they actually practiced with the pianist who was going to be performing with them. 
And of course, it was a song he was having trouble with. We missed that uh, that chance to work with the pianist. And then all of a sudden, he's up on stage in this foreign auditorium he's never been before in front of 100 people to play a song that he wasn't particularly comfortable with, accompanied by a piano that he had never played with. Oh, wow. And, you know, looking back, I'm just so embarrassed. It was obviously a mess. He started playing. He got confused. Then he stopped. Then he walked off stage. And this is, you know, he was whatever, eight or nine. Um, but I go back with the vision now of a highly, of knowing what a highly sensitive kid is. And I, I, you know, I I look back and I say, boy, we should have just paid to have the pianist come separately some other day to practice with him. And we should have taken him to that auditorium the day before and had him stand up on stage and see what it felt like. And, and maybe that wasn't the best piece for a highly sensitive kid to be playing since he was struggling with it in the first place. All these things that if I had known we would have done differently or better, um, but I would have never even had a concept of what that meant because I am not that way at all. Like that's not how I am, but yet my wife and and both of my kids are somewhat like that. So it was, it was just so helpful to read that. And I know you consider yourself highly sensitive and maybe at least one or both of your kids. Yeah, (laughs) I can see it already. And my husband is um, as well. And, and I would say he, he's, highly sensitive in a different way than me, but it's, it's just fascinating to observe. And I just find myself explaining things to him. So for example, we were just in the twin cities for a week and on the drive home, I couldn't help but use this metaphor for him where I said, so imagine that someone's trying to send oranges down, um, you know, down a chute. And most of the people there are sorting them into small, medium, and large. They have three slots and this, this metaphor is just huge when you think you have 15 slots. So if a bunch of information just came at you and he was, he was just so like burnt out and tired from the weekend. And I was just like, you're, and he just was talking to process events and things we had seen. And, you know, it's the twin cities. Think about everything going on in the twin cities right now, rightfully so. And, and just to hear him sort through his, thoughts when he's also kind of a quiet and soft-spoken person. And I'm like, well, you've got 15 slots that you're moving through there. So uh, <laughs> he liked that analogy. Once again, never read a book about high sensitivity though. It, it took me and, and look at, I even think of myself going through this years of my, you know, I have therapy as a young kid for my anorexia and I never heard about it. It took me being a tag coach, trying to help other kids <laughs> to other kids as in I'm still a kid in my head, but, um, <laughs> you know, trying to help other people before I heard about these things that deeply helped myself. And I do want to expose other adults to these ideas. There's so many of them in creative psychology that are beneficial and, um, life-changing, like truly those things that you find out, like you said, for your own personal story. And it's a lens to see things through that really, uh, eases up a lot of, uh, other negative emotions or self-judgment that might've happened. Yeah. And it's people confuse highly sensitive with introvert and it's not exactly the same. I mean, you can be an extroverted, highly sensitive person, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. But I like, especially talking about what we talked on the podcast today is the connection to, to creativity, because I think highly sensitive people are actually fairly powerful people. If you can provide certain types of environments for them to grow and thrive. And especially when I think of children, Um, but they tend to be very creative, very leadership oriented, uh, very kind of far seeing into the future. uh, If, if nurtured. Yeah. And uh, I, 
I believe wholeheartedly in the power of environment and rethinking environments in order to help people succeed, either when we talk motivation and discipline, um, you know, environmental control in order to help those things happen. Uh, so for me, I want to read more. So where do I have my books? I have my books downstairs. I have a book upstairs. I have a book in the car for when my child falls asleep on his nap. It's, it's just environment is huge. And I think it took me a long time to realize that. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 